Hello, welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast. I'm your host, Des Latham. We are into week 37 of this series, and Johannesburg lies before Lord Robert's army. But he's using a velvet glove, which in retrospect is one of the biggest bungles of his career. While he frets over the details in Johannesburg, Colville is given a severe case of bloody nose by the Boers in Lindley in the Free State. Lord Roberts's large army has made its way over 1,400 kilometres from Cape Town to Johannesburg, and in the north, the Transvaal Republic capital Pretoria awaits his khaki-dressed soldiers. The mines are safe, and that's been one of the main worries facing the British commander as he marches northwards, with Oom or Uncle Paul Kruger, the Boer president, threatening to blow them up, while his general, Louis Boerta, was threatening to protect these mines, saying it would be cowardly to destroy them. What would the Boers gain by blasting these valuable enterprises away was the general's question. While Kruger was not really planning to destroy the mines, he was just cleverly using the threat to try and convince the British to return to the negotiating table. However, that failed. On the 30th of May 1900, Hamilton had made it through to Florida Lake near the modern-day Rudaport, just west of Johannesburg, where he captured a Boer unit and the cavalry and the general French had circled north of Johannesburg, capturing another Boer convoy. Then a few other units headed to the east of the city. By the next day, the British were preparing to march into Johannesburg after earlier short, sharp skirmishes and the Battle of Duenkop to the west, which we heard about last week. While the British planned the entry into the City of Gold, the Boers had already withdrawn towards Pretoria in some disorder, but still commanded their guns and had carried most of their strategic supplies and the last gold to have been produced in the important mines of Johannesburg. Lord Roberts thought it best to allow the Boers to withdraw, as the commander of Johannesburg, a Mr. Krauser, asked that the last commandos be allowed out and avoid the killing of women and children who remained in the city. Their commander-in-chief, their hero Kruger, though, remained at large. The city of Johannesburg formally surrendered, and at 10 in the morning on the last day of May 1900, Lord Roberts rode through the streets, which still exist, along Commissioner Street, down to the law courts, which are still there, where Roberts dismounted and walked into the court building, where the municipal managers were waiting for him, along with Mr. Krauser, the administrator. Afterwards, the Fier Clear, or the four-coloured Transvaal Republic flag, was pulled down and the Union Jack was erected in its place in the city square. Lord Roberts watched and took the salute. God save the Queen was sung and three cheers rang out. These matters ended at four in the afternoon, after which Roberts went to lunch, where apparently most who attended drank heavily and none left sober. Bizarre to account, but that night the papers in London were all about the races at Epsom. To the British public, this little war was over, and little England had returned to the enthusiasms of peace. But this little war wasn't over, not by a long shot. Inside Johannesburg, and watching from a distance, were a handful of Boers, as most English had already left the city. Also watching were black Johannesburgers who believed the English were like an army sent by angels to release them from the servitude of the Boers. It must have been an utter shock to discover that the English were not their saviours, that the plan was to force the 14,000 black workers back to the serving of gold mine owners for a measly few shillings a month. Their earnings were set to drop in the wake of this war, helping Rhodes and his fellow London financiers earn huge profits. 
The worker bees of the Golden Hive, as Thomas Pakenham describes these black workers, had toiled throughout the war so far, providing the important yellow mineral which was used by the Boers to fund their war. The Boers had also used a hated passbook system to control the movement of blacks in the Transvaal Republic since the discovery of gold caused a rush to find jobs. As the British arrived, the black workers literally set fire to their hated passbooks. The black workers also took great pains to stand on pavements in the city, pavements that were banned from using by the previous Eitlander and Boer administrations. Blacks were not allowed to walk on pavements in parts of South Africa at this time. So the lowly pavement became the symbol of rights of black South Africans. British leadership, however, were shocked to find blacks on pavements and put a stop to this immediately. The first step of Roberts's government wasn't to provide food for the people or to ensure that there was enough ammunition and logistic support for their troops. It was actually to get black South Africans back into townships. And the British did this with the efficiency the Boers could only dream of. Nothing like an empire to manage the finer details of oppression, isn't it? The shock of being released from servitude only to face a far more organised oppressor must have been severe for these people because the British had no intention of changing any of the laws governing black and white. The men who now wanted to administer Johannesburg and the Transvaal were Eightlanders. They were not of the land. They were English speakers who believed it was their innate right to rule others. While they regarded the Boers as less than equal, they regarded blacks as savages who had no rights whatsoever. And what these eight Londoners did immediately was to cut black wages. Extraordinary that in the time of relief, black South Africans immediately faced two realities. That the English speaker was not going to save them and that their employers would be paying them less in the future for the terrifying job of mining gold underground. Lord Roberts immediately installed two Eightlanders who were employees of mining firms as the new administrators of the Witwatersrand, or Whitewaters Ridge, where the rivers flowed both north and south. It's a geological oddity, Johannesburg. Rivers which rise at this high point on the plains of South Africa flow in opposite directions, virtually at the point at which gold is mined. Thus, the Whitewaters Ridge, or Witwatersrand. Sam Evans, who worked for the powerful Vernabite Gold Mining Company, was made Commissioner of Finance for the new British administration. All while the Boers continued to stream north as the British made themselves comfortable. It was Saturday the 2nd of June 1900, and Jan Smuts, who became world famous later during the Second World War, was struck by the chaos that ensued. The mess, the shame and the humiliation of the scrambled withdrawal haunted Smuts for the rest of his life as the Boers retreated. There were moments of symbolism that are difficult to fathom now in the second decade of the 21st century. Four of the Boers' forts built after the Jamison raid were emptied of their defensive guns. Skanskorp, Klapperkorp, Daspurt and Vonneboom were built as defensive structures against attack, specifically the British, and now they were going to fall to this enemy without a shot being fired. Smuts called it the Great Armageddon as these four Pretoria forts were dismantled. Worse, the folk were leaving Pretoria in droves and were actually looting their own capital as they fled. A committee of peace and order was formed, which was just a group of men preparing to hand over the capital to the British. 
A war council, or Kreisrat, was held on the 1st of June in a Pretoria telegraph office, where that famous Boer general Louis Boerter, along with Jan Smuts, drafted a telegram to Oom Paul Kruger, suggesting an immediate surrender. This may be a surprise, as Boerter and Smuts were clearly two of the most organised and motivated Boer officers, but there were others who were preparing themselves for death or glory. And Boerter was to become one of the most successful guerrilla war leaders of the campaign over the next two years, but here he was, suggesting surrender. Also determined to fight on were Denise Reitz and his three brothers, who we have tracked since the start of this podcast series. They were honed by the felt, the plains of South Africa, and were stalwarts in the struggle against the British. Ironically, joining these four in their enterprise was Charlie, a black South African who had fought alongside his Boer friends for reasons that are hard to clarify all these years later. Living in a territory that is violent and testing creates harmony amongst men and women. These five men had lived together through testing battles against the British in Natal and the Free State. They had survived storms that had destroyed flimsy buildings and flash floods that had suffocated and killed. So they were brothers in a way in which we can only imagine. In his book called Commando, Denise Reitz explains the chaos. As we passed the gold mines that lay on our route, there was a small column of English cavalry drawn up not far off, watching us go by, but they made no attempt to interfere with us, probably thinking we were refugees and not worth bothering about. Charlie, sitting on his horse alongside Reitz, muttered, Those English people don't know the road to Pretoria, so they are coming along with us to make sure. Reitz realises that the English aren't firing at the commandos, retreating, because they believe the war is at an end, but he knows it's not. And remember, he's only 17. While Reitz and his crew prepared for their next mission, Kruger had been forced to make a momentous decision, and that was to leave his wife behind in Pretoria. She was an invalid, but he knew it was vital to show the followers that he was not captured, so he took his last farewell of his beloved wife of four decades in their little house in Church Street, Pretoria, and retreated east. That little house is still there, by the way. However, Kruger and his wife never saw each other again. She died inside the house before he could return. This hasty retreat, as usual, has a storyline which only this war could produce. Lord Roberts had heard that the Boers were going to retreat and that the likely route their president would take was east. Indeed, Kruger was already on his way to Machadadorp, which was on the main railway line to Portuguese East Africa, or Mozambique as we know it today. Lord Roberts then sent his cavalry west instead of east, still preferring to avoid a major clash with the retreating Boers. I know he'd spent six months on the South African landscape, which stretches away before you like an ancient stony desert, its hot and its dusty plains, but still you have to wonder what was going through this leader's mind. Why didn't he ensure that Kruger was caught? Military analysts have pondered this question for many years. There's no easy answer. Instead, Roberts sent an American mercenary called Fred Burnham, along with British Major Hunter Weston, eastwards, with a small company of mounted men to blow up the railway lines to the east. Incredibly, Roberts preferred to deter Kruger rather than confront him. This daredevil American almost died as he carried out his mission, and the details are astonishing. Burnham and Weston were sent on a mission to cut off the flow of Boer gold and supplies to and from the sea and to halt the transportation of British prisoners of war out of Pretoria. 
If they managed to halt Kruger, all the better. In the modern era, he would have been a Navy SEAL or a Special Force operative. Burnham was the epitome of a proper Special Force soldier. He left his British friends and scouted alone, far to the east behind enemy lines, trying to identify the best choke point along the Pretoria-Delagoa Bay railway line. In doing so, he was using his incredible training provided by the Sioux in America, which I'll describe in a moment, but first, the mission. Burnham found an underpass of a railway bridge which was an ideal location to disrupt the trains but was immediately surrounded by a party of Boers who expected this sort of attack. Burnham galloped away and had almost escaped when his horse was shot and fell, knocking him out and pinning him under its dead body. It was twilight and the Boers thought they'd killed him so they didn't check and left him where he lay. When Burnham awoke hours later, the American was alone and in a dazed state, having sustained serious injuries. In spite of acute agony, Burnham crept back to the railway line, placed his charges and blew up the line in two places. He then crept on his hands and knees to an empty animal enclosure nearby in order to avoid capture and stayed there for two days and nights in a state of semi-consciousness. After more than 48 hours suffering extraordinary pain, Burnham heard fighting in the distance, so he crawled in that direction. By this time, he was indifferent to the source of the gunshots, and by chance, it was a British patrol that found him. Once in Pretoria, the surgeons discovered that Burnham had torn apart his stomach muscles and burst a blood vessel. His very survival was due only to the fact that he had been without food or water for three days. Had he swallowed food or liquids, he would have died almost instantly. Burnham's injuries were so serious, he was ordered back to England by Lord Roberts, and upon his arrival there, Burnham dined with Queen Victoria and spent the night at Osborne House. You have to be amazed by people from this era. Burnham's early days are part of this magnificent story, so let me tell you a little more about this man. Born in 1861 on a Dakota Sioux Indian reservation in Minnesota, he learned the ways of the American Indians as a boy. By the age of 14, he was supporting himself in California, while also learning scouting from some of the last of the cowboys and frontiersmen of the American Southwest. Burnham had little formal education and never finished high school. He fought in the Pleasant Valley War, which was a feud between families of ranchers and sheep herders in the 1880s in the USA, then sought out new adventures in South Africa in 1893, seeing Cecil Rhodes' Cape to Cairo railway project as the next great undeveloped frontier. After numerous scrapes and adventures, he returned to the USA and actually had been based in Alaska, prospecting near Skagway, when he received the following telegram in January 1900. Lord Roberts appoints you on his personal staff as Chief of Scouts. If you accept, come at once the quickest way possible. Well, he accepted, and the rest, as they say, is South African history. So back to the main event. While Johannesburg had fallen on the 31st of May, a great calamity had befallen the British forces in the Free State on the same day, and when the news reached Roberts, he was gutted. In the last podcast, I outlined how Boer Pete de Vett had been placed on a list of cowards after he offered to surrender, along with 1,000 men, which drove his brother Christian to state publicly that he would shoot Pete the next time he saw him. But history is full of the kinds of events that turn cowards into heroes and vice versa, and Pete de Vett was about to deliver a blow against the British, which did actually shake their resolve. 
The events which led to this remarkable 180-degree turnabout are typical of the story of warfare. It's called the fog of war for a reason, as we all know. Furthermore, the blow fell against an Irish unit which symbolized the British Empire in both its adherence to Protestantism and its engagements in Northern Ireland. It all involved the 13th Battalion of the Imperial Yeomanry and that little town of Lindley, which Churchill thought of as an isolated and strategically unimportant nothing. The 13th Battalion was composed of an interesting collection of Irishmen and was the social and political showpiece of the new volunteer army. It had a company of Irish MFHs, which means Mounted Fox Hunters. This company was known as the Irish Hunt Contingent and included the Earl of Longford and Viscount Ennis Moore. Two other companies of Ulster Protestant Unionists, including the Earl of Leitrim and a whiskey baron called Sir John Power, as well as the future Lord Craighaven. Also part of the 13th Battalion was a company of Irish middle-class men about town, raised by Lord Donamore, which had insisted on paying its own passage to South Africa to save the empire a few pounds. The 13th Battalion was led by a British regular soldier, Lieutenant Colonel Basil Sprague, who proved himself, according to Thomas Packenham, a regular ass. Just for information, a company is a military unit of around 100 men. The miscommunication which followed was a classic example of what happens when battalions of non-regular soldiers become confused, worsened by a lack of initiative by the commanding officer. The 13th Battalion had made its way north from Cape Town to arrive at Lindley on the 27th of May, only to find that Colville had left the town and it had now returned to Boer control. So there were two options open to Lieutenant Colonel Sprague, retreat to the high ground and send an SOS to Colville for help, or make a fighting retreat to Kronstadt, where a large group of British soldiers would help. Sprague decided on the SOS to Colville, in which he said, I can get out, but shall lose in doing so. Then his men dug in on the top of Kopis, or small hills near Lindley, and waited for rescue. Unfortunately for Sprague and his men, Colville had been ordered further east to Heilbronn in the Free State, and they were not to be rescued. Worse, Piet Davet had tapped into a British telegraph line and was listening to all messages and immediately realised he could deliver a swift uppercut to these Britishers hiding on the kopje. On the 31st of May, De Vette attacked and the Irish fought heroically, although marred by a corporal in one of the Irish companies who lifted a white flag as the fighting intensified. He was promptly shot dead by his own men for the act of treason and cowardice. However, Piet de Vette had something Sprague did not, artillery. As soon as the guns began to burst their shells amongst the British exposed on their copies, they surrendered anyway. When the Battle of Lindley was over, 80 Irishmen were dead or wounded and 530 were captured. It was a gallant last stand with the Irish Hunt Company led by Lord Longford, blood streaming from wounds in his neck, face and wrist, ordering his men to fight to the end. The son of the Irish Lord Chancellor was part of the fight to the death, and he said afterwards, I knew it to be madness, and so did everyone else, I think, but not a man refused. Sprague was captured as the only Englishman amongst the Irish. Lord Longford survived with serious wounds. The whiskey baron Sir John Power was dead, and the prisoners were all marched to the eastern Transvaal, while Pete de Vette managed to evade over 20,000 British troops sent by Colville and Roberts to rescue them. 
I'll deal with Christian de Wett's movements during this time next week at the incredible Battle of Rudeval. But suffice to say, both brothers were now causing a great deal of panic behind the British lines as they appeared to attack various points with impunity. This should have been a clear sign of the type of warfare the British could expect in the future, but instead it was victory that Lord Roberts believed was imminent. These few Boers could hardly expect to keep fighting once the great capital Pretoria was seized. Next week we'll track Roberts and his grand army into the Transvaal capital while the ocean of felt, the thousands of kilometres of emptiness, would explode in a new type of fighting which was perfected by the Boers called guerrilla warfare. While guerrilla warfare techniques are ancient, what was now going to be different was the pure mobility and innovative methods used by the Boers in exposing the weaknesses of an army that was organised. These techniques are still used today by the Taliban, for example, in Afghanistan. Until then, please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes. You're doing a great job, and thank you for all the messages of support from around the world. You can also DM me on Twitter at Des Latham, or send an email through the website, which is abwarpodcast.com. Until then, goodbye.